But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Steve. An important part of Christian worship um, that I don't speak about nearly enough is giving to the church, tithing to the church. And so the elders at this time of year, at Thanksgiving, uh, in preparation for our giving season of Christmas, have asked me to talk about tithing. And so uh, I saved up this uh, passage from Mark. Those of you who have been coming for a while know we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. And this passage where Jesus watches uh, the widow give uh, her last two cents to the, to the temple, uh, it seemed an appropriate passage to talk about it this time of the year. So let's have a look at it. Remember, uh, we're in a gospel, the gospel of, of Mark. Gospel means good news. So it might not be immediately obvious, but this is good news. Jesus made a point of doing this. This, remember, is right before he is arrested, right before uh, Passover and, and when he goes uh, before the Sanhedrin and is on his way to the cross. So the fact that Jesus took his time, time out for this story to occur at all means it must be part of the good news, part of the gospel. Jesus sat down opposite the palace where the offerings were put, sorry, opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. So we've seen Jesus challenge what happens in the temple several times. Here he is in the temple courts. This wouldn't have been actually inside the temple. This would have been outside large chests where people could bring their charitable giving. And he's watching people give. Why would he do that? Because he thought it was important. In fact, if you look at the Bible, if you look at Jesus' uh, teaching, 70% of all Jesus' parables are about money and wealth. It was for him a potent window into the spiritual heart of men and women. As he was fond of saying, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so he's watching these rich people giving money to the temple. This would have been a, a public moment. The, the chests were outside in the courts. And so this would have been an ostentatious public uh, offering that would have been all about prestige and status among the rich of Jerusalem. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. A poor widow. Poverty, destitution, or almost in the Bible, synonyms for widowhood. In the ancient world, if you were not married as a, uh, a mature woman, then there were very few options. Very few options to make a living. Very few options to feed yourself and thrive. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, 
Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. Notice a couple of things. Jesus calls his disciples to him to witness what he is witnessing. He wants them to see this. This is part of his teaching. And when it, whenever he says, truly I tell you, this was Jesus' habit, a formula. Literally, he's saying, amen. It was the practice back in that time that if somebody said something you agreed with, that you believed that was the truth, you would add at the end, amen. I agreed to that. That's the truth. Listen to this. It was Jesus' unique habit when he taught something important to start with amen. He didn't need his truth to be validated by any human being. He was self-validating. He brought his own truth. He asked us to listen to the truth that he brought into the world. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Wow, I butchered that. Let me do that again. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. The rich people are giving large, she's giving small, and Jesus says she is giving more than all of them because she was giving everything that she had. So is this a stupid old woman? After all, she's giving everything that she had. Wouldn't she starve? Wouldn't this be a reckless thing for a single person on the edge to do? And yet Jesus watches her and uses this as a teaching opportunity. He doesn't challenge what she's done. Remember, this is the Jesus who said this temple is going to be destroyed, that it is corrupt, that the things that go on here are no longer of God. He could have used this as a teaching moment. He could have gone up there just as he did with the money changes and say, this must stop. This is no longer godly. Poor people shouldn't be giving money to a corrupt institution. But he doesn't do any of that. He says, look, what she's doing here is important. I want you to pay attention. So what is the widow doing? What does the widow know that Jesus is applauding? They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty. She's not giving money to a human institution to corrupt people, to corrupt motives of the human leaders of the temple and Israel. She is giving in faith to her God. And she's giving everything that she has. This is an act of pure faith. Absolute self-giving. And that's the gospel in a nutshell. The act of self-giving. Remember what Jesus is about to do when he goes to the cross. And contrast with what the rich are doing. They're wealthy. They're given a portion. They're giving for their own glory and prestige and status. Who's going to pay attention to a widow? Only Jesus. And what she is doing is deeply stupid. Giving away your last two cents. If God does not exist, then she is giving away our last meal. She is alone 
in the universe, in the world. Nobody cares. She's going to starve. The only way this possibly makes any sense is if God does exist. And then she's a child of God, and her father will take care of her. You know, Jesus said to his disciples, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? By the way, she is soon going to know if God exists. She's given away our last two cents. If she starves, well, she was stupid. He doesn't exist. He's not her father. Nobody cares. She will know within a few hours or days whether or not her God exists. And the fact that Jesus tells us his, her story, the fact that Jesus points to her as part of his gospel, shows that her faith is justified. God does exist. She is his child. He is her father. And he's going to take care of her. She is putting her faith in God's reality. Why was there a temple in Jerusalem? Why was it there? What was the purpose of that temple? The temple was where God-fearing Jews came to worship their God and made themselves right with their God, that is, paid through sacrifice, through the sacrifice of animals and the, the sacrifice of money, paid for the ways their lives did not honor God. And their faith was that by doing that, in faith, they were made right with the God of Israel. But is that just a monetary transaction? Is that just a religious transaction? You pay your money, God loves you, takes care of you. If God loved them, if they were the chosen people, if this widow belonged to him, part of his family, why did she need to pay anything at all? Why did she need to do anything at all? Let me give you an illustration. This happened to me and uh, kind of shook me up a little bit. Um, years ago, in my early 20s, I had been traveling for a while, four years in fact, and I came back home, back to England, back to the family house, and it was great. You know, they welcomed me back. I felt loved and accepted and everything was wonderful. Um, but then after a week or two, my mother asked me if I would start contributing to the household. She wanted 50 pounds a month, which is not much, by the way, not for a month worth of uh, accommodation of food. But I was gutted. I was, I was almost distraught. It was horrible. Tony had become a lodger in his own home. Lodger is an English expression. It's a horrible word. It means somebody who rents out a, a room in somebody's house, a lodger. It sounds like something lodged in your shoe or between your teeth, you know, unwanted, unsightly, better to get rid of a lodger. So I'd become a lodger. I'd lost my family. 
a stranger now who had to pray for the privilege of living with them. And I was really upset, sulky, resentful. I can do sulk, by the way, better than almost anybody. And I felt like a, an outcast. I was a renter. I was a lodger in my own home. It was only when my father explained to me what was happening. Tony, you're an adult now. We're not going to kick you out if you don't pay that money. You are part of the family. But now, as an adult, it's time to take responsibility for the life of the family. The 50 pounds doesn't mean you're an outsider, a lodger, who has to pay for the privilege of being in the house. Rather, it means you're now at the very center of the home, taking care of your responsibilities, taking care of the family. It's not a sign of being on the edge of things and paying to get in. It is a sign of growing up and being at the center and taking responsibility for the family that you're part of. What did Jesus see in this widow? He saw a woman who would not be defined by her poverty. Her situation is an outcast in the society that she was part of but rather was claiming her identity as one of God's chosen people. By giving to the temple, which was the place where God met his people, she was demonstrating her faith and her participation in that bigger story. The story of God's redemption of his people the redemption of the whole world, ultimately, through the Messiah that he promised to send. That was her story, and she was supporting that story. She did not look at Jesus or even talk to him, as far as we know. He just watched her. But she had more faith in him as the Messiah than almost anybody, certainly more than his disciples who, ran, who we saw ran away as soon as Jesus was arrested. She gave out of her poverty of her last for him, for the promise of him, for what he was going to do for her and for God's people. Now the Messiah is now much more visible to us in the person of Jesus than it would have been to her. He is our hope. He is our meaning. We are part of his story. But it was her hope, he was her hope and meaning all the way back then. And that's why he said, look at her. She recognized that God was going to take care of us, going to take care of her, that the Messiah would show up, would solve the problems of her life and all of our lives. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. Is God real? That is the question. Can you and I trust God with our lives? Will he take care of us if we don't care, take care of ourselves? Should we save up all our money to protect us, to protect ourselves, to advance our kingdom, to make sure that we're going to be safe and happy? Or are we part of a bigger story, his story? 
You know, I said that 70% of all of Jesus' parables, all of his teachings were about money and wealth. He thought it was important. And it is a remarkable fact that giving is the only thing in the Bible that God says, test me. This is from the book of Micah, the last book of the Old Testament. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Tithe was 10% of your wealth, of what you had. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Back then, most people's wealth was what they could grow, what they could produce. And God is saying, my house, the temple, needs part of that food to take care of the widows, to take care of the poor, to advance the kingdom. I've given you everything. You can have 90%. Test me with the other 10%. See if I come through or not. Test me. Find out. By the way, this is a good thing to do early in your life. Think of all the money you're going to waste giving to the church if God is not real. Find out when you're young. Try it. If he's not real, go buy a sailboat. Why not? Test me. See if I'm real. See if I take care of you. See if you thrive. See if your family thrives. Your money is just paper. It has no intrinsic value, but it's how we keep track of what's important. It's how we keep track of our obligations to each other. What is valuable, what's worth our time and work and attention. And therefore, it is a potent surface marker of what's going on in your life and in your heart. If you ever do counseling, you know that arguments between people about money are always about something else. They're about conflicted priorities. They're about things that the other person is doing with their money that you don't think are wise. They're about things that can't happen in your future because the other person is not being responsible with money, in your opinion. Money is a potent probe of your heart and your relationships. And it is exactly the same with God. You know, my experience with this has been progressive. I became a Christian when I was 30 years old. I was not in the habit of giving to anybody, let alone God. And I, I sort of enjoyed going to church, and I would give a, a symbolic dollar. That was like when the offering thing came, a dollar. Just to show I was there, just so that God would pay attention. Uh, I'd been brutalized back in the 80s by um, seeing TV evangelists on TV uh, in America and in England and their hypocrisy and you know, spending their money on helicopters and Rolls Royces and all the crazy things that the uh, TV evangelists used to do. And I was very cynical about the church. Why give the church my money? It took me a while of going to church to develop my own relationship with God, independent of what I was hearing on Sunday, that I began to realize it wasn't about the church. It was about God and God's kingdom and my participation in the work of the kingdom. You know, that dollar crept up to $20. I can't remember how long that took. Then I started bringing a checkbook 
but I would forget it all the time. And, you know, how do you work out how much you earned? I was a student. How much, you, how much did I earn that week? God knows. It wasn't until I became an intern that I finally came to the solution, which was just an automatic debit. My prayer partner said that that was too easy, too mechanical, that I should agonize and pray about tithing every week, that it was a spiritual activity. There's some truth to that. But I was just not disciplined enough. And what I learned was that once you do start to tithe, you now have a pool of money that belongs to God and not you. And so if something happens, somebody, goes along, some, somebody needs something in their life, needs help with their rent or food or clothes, if you meet a missionary, if you come across a great ministry, if there's some Christian project that you're excited about, you can give part of your tithe to that. Suddenly, it's God's money, and you start supporting people advancing God's kingdom. Um, two warnings, though. Two, no, I'm not sure there are warnings. Two things you should know about me. You know, I'm a pastor of the church, and some pastors believe that they should look at what the people of the church are giving because it's such a potent spiritual tool. That you can look at what people give and figure out where they are with God and who needs your attention. I have never believed in that, although many pastors that I know do say that. And the reason is, some of you have heard this, when I became a pastor, when I was ordained, my father told me a story he'd never told. When he was a young man in Wales, in a small village in North Wales, he got excited about the church. This was preteen dad. And he started going to the, uh, the uh, what would you call it, the vicar, the Anglican priest in his village. And he started to help out. And he loved it. And it was a big part of his life. And he invited his mother, my grandmother, to visit the church one day. And just as he was introducing her to the vicar, to the priest, to the minister, the richest family in the village came through the front door. And the priest dropped my grandmother and ran off to pay attention to this rich family because they were the ones giving so much to the church. And my dad walked out with his mother from the church and he never went back. He never forgot that. The way that his mother had been treated with such contempt by the church. And so that's the reason I never look at what people give. I will ignore you with a clear conscience because I don't know how much you give. <laughs> and the other thing that I've learned is, I learned this from Billy Graham. You know, he used to do his um, evangelistic tent meetings. He was at one in Los Angeles, one of his early ones, and it was a tremendous event. And he bought the LA Times the next day, and the picture on the front page was of him coming out of the tent with two bags of money because there was nobody else there. And, you know, they had made, had a collection, and there was nobody else to deal with it, and so he was the only one, and he picked it up, and he deposited it. Well, the, to the LA Times, that was a symbol of his whole ministry, and he pledged after that he would never touch money again, he would never sign a check, he would never do anything to do with the money collected through his ministry. And so I don't touch money. I don't know how much you give. I don't write checks. I can't even sign a check for this church. We have trustees who can do that. Let me finish with this. 
Um, this is a, a verse that's been rattling around my head ever since the man's retreat. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In fact, the book of Proverbs says it begins, wisdom begins with the knowledge of the fact that God exists. And if that is true, if, this, if God does exist and this is God's world, then if you don't base your life on that fact, if you don't live in the light of that truth, then no matter what decisions you make, it's not going to work out. You're not going to be able to make wise decisions if you leave out the most important fact about you and the world. And if that is true, then your existence and my existence is an absolute gift, an act, absolute gracious gift. God created us out of nothing, and we are creatures in his world. He has given us everything that there is and everything that we are, freely. He's also given us a free choice. God never forces. There is a divine courtesy. You and I can choose to live as selfishly and evilly as we, as we want, as we can come up with, and many people do. But we can also live lives that are wise because they're based on God, and we can freely choose to do God's will rather than our own. We can recognize ourselves as godly creatures living in God's world. And therefore, it is wise to be about doing his will, not our own. That's the essence of being a Christian. It's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on heaven and earth. Thy will, not my will. And the Christian life, the Christian call, is to be about the business of the Lord. And that is wise because you were created by him with talents, with a purpose. Your life has meaning to the extent that you fulfill that call. And if all that is true, then we are part of God's family. You know, in a moment, we're going to go to the Lord's table, the family table. I'm going to ask you a question right before we go. Are you part of this family? Are you about the business of your father? Are you advancing his kingdom or your kingdom? Are you basing your life and your life's choices on him or yourself? You know, a few years ago, a group of us went down to Honduras for a missions trip. And we went to a town, uh, San Pedro de Sula, one of the most uh, dangerous towns in Honduras because it's been carved up by some vicious gangs. Driving around that town, you would see people, guards, standing in front of pharmacies and stores and banks with pump-action shotguns. Fourteen people were shot when we arrived. And we were told by, by the Christians that don't go out. It was so dangerous that the gangs wouldn't even let the school kids use the few playgrounds in the town because they claimed it for themselves. They didn't use it. They just crumbled. Even the poorest little shack had barbed wire and bars on the windows. At night, it was dark and dangerous, very few streetlights. It was just, it was a hellish place. 
genuinely scary to go out or even think about going out at night. And yet in the very center of the roughest neighborhood was the church that had invited us. And they had this concrete hall, no paint or decorations. They, they could only afford the space. And great concrete, great concrete floor, a few lights, and yet the whole place was lit up by the people. They had this huge, bright, vibrant prayer and worship service. They wanted to thank us for coming, and they wanted to celebrate our presence there. And so they had a beautiful concert for us. And at the front, they had all the women of the church. They had dressed up in satins. They had tambourines. They had ribbons. And they were dancing. And all their daughters and all the little girls in the entire place came forward. And they were all dancing for us in the, in the front. It was, it was beautiful, singing their hearts out with their daughters and their little girls. So there we were in this dark, dangerous town, in this essentially a bomb shelter, a concrete bunker, and it was filled with light. It was the gospel. Light in the darkness. They believed, and they had come to worship their God. And it was beautiful. I mean, it was overwhelmingly beautiful. God's light shines in the darkness. That is not a metaphor. When people devote their lives to God, when they put their faith in his reality, when they start building his kingdom and not their own, they form something extraordinary. They create communities of light in dark places. That's what we saw in Honduras. A concrete bunker, and yet it was sweet and safe enough that all the little girls wanted to dance there. And yet it was tough enough that they were not afraid of the gangs. <laughs> Cry now. Are you part of that kingdom? That's why we're here. Are you part of God's family? When you come to the table, it's the time to decide because this is his table. Do you believe? Have you put your faith in him? Are you about the business of his kingdom? Let's pray. Lord, um, what a gift you bring into our lives, into our world. Help us to be men and women of faith. The faith of that widow by herself in that temple. Help us, Lord, give ourselves to you as you gave yourself to us. Help us in our daily life to make choices that honor you, that follow you, that glorify you. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.